Luke chapter 4, continuing in the Missio Christi series, A Mission of Christ. As you're going to Luke chapter 4, I want to remember to say what up to our brothers and sisters in Ventura. Give them a big what up, Carpinteria. We love you guys at the Ventura campus. Our hearts are with you. Your hearts are with us. We are one church in two locations, and we love you. Luke chapter 4, Missio Christi series, Kingdom Part 2. If you weren't here last week for Kingdom Part 1, you want to get that. You want to grab the DVD or the CD or get it on iTunes or download it at the website. You can get it a million ways. Uh, but get that because you want to have a little context for what we're talking about this morning. And these messages build on each other. So Kingdom Part 2 this morning. If you're open to Luke chapter 4, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your incredible love. Thank you that though we were people who were once far off by your sacrifice, your pursuit, your grace, your love, your cross and your resurrection, we've been brought near. And Lord, we want to experience the fullness of a life with you. We want to experience all the benefits of the cross and of the kingdom. We don't only want to experience them, but we want to demonstrate them. We want the power of the kingdom going forth through our lives. And so we ask that this, holy, this morning, Holy Spirit, you'd work in us. You'd work in us a deep passion for mission and for being on mission. In the immediate context where we find ourselves with our own brothers and sisters, moms and dads, our own workmates and our own classmates, give us a passion to expose and explain King Jesus to them. Holy Spirit, deal with idols in our lives that would keep us from being on mission. Preoccupations, other things that we've given ourselves to, those things that are shaping our thoughts and our actions other than you, deal with them this morning. We ask that God, you would be the jealous God who's ruthless with idols in our lives. And yet be merciful with us, Lord, because we know our own hearts and we're prone to wander. We just ask that we be found by you this morning, brought into the fold, set on fire for your glory. Lord, we ask together that you help me to communicate, that I want to get in the way, but I'd be a faithful messenger by your grace and for your glory. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, We've been talking about the kingdom of God and we defined the kingdom of God this way. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God that came in a peculiar way at the first coming of Christ, is coming in its fullness at the second coming of Christ, and is working presently in us and through us by the power of Christ. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God that came in a peculiar way with Christ, is coming in its fullness with Christ, and is working in us and through us by Christ. So when we think about the kingdom of God, we understand that it is historical, it happened in the past, it is practical, it's taking place in the present, and it is eschatological, it's going to happen in the future. What helps us to think about these three tenses of the kingdom is when we realize, and we all realize this, that our salvation takes place in three tenses. You guys know this. You may have never articulated it this way, but you kind of understand this by having a, a biblical mindset. Our salvation takes place in three tenses. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Amen. Past tense. Have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin, amen? 
present tense. We are daily being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. Future tense. It all is won and achieved at the cross, but it unfolds in three tenses throughout history. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, are being saved from the power of sin, will be saved from the presence of sin once and for all. So as we relate that to the kingdom then, the kingdom has come and set us free. That's history. The kingdom is presently going forth and setting people free. It's a present action. And the kingdom will come and do away with all sin and evil once and for all. That's an eschatological future end time reality. Now, here's how that understanding of the kingdom relates to being on mission. Again, three tenses. We preach Christ crucified and resurrected. We preach a historical event, history. We demonstrate the crucified and resurrected life of Christ in us. That's a present action. And we point to the renewal of all things by Christ. That is a future hope. So mission then, we, we preach the historical fact of Christ's death and resurrection. We display the life of Christ through our lives. And we point the world toward a consummation, a completion, a finish, a renewal of all things. We tell the world that things aren't senseless, but it is heading towards something. It's not a never-ending circle, but there's a finish, and that finish is Christ himself. And this kingdom mindset, as we are people on mission, requires that we give attention to both proclamation and demonstration. Okay, it involves what we say, what we tell, and what we do, how we act. We need to give attention to both. We see over and over again in the gospel accounts that Christ went and he preached the gospel of God. He would say to his disciples, let's go now to some other cities that I might preach there. It is for that reason that I came. We also see that he not only preached the kingdom of God and the gospel of God, that he put it on display as well right? Through signs and wonders and healings and compassion and mercy and resurrections. So Christ gave attention in his ministry and our mission is shaped by his mission. He gave attention to proclamation and demonstration. If we only have proclamation as some of the sort of modern conservative church has been given to, just concerned with proclamation of the gospel, if, if we only have that without demonstration, then our mission isn't like Christ. We're missing something. If we only have demonstration without a solid proclamation of the gospel, as some of the liberal church has been given to do, then we're missing something. At best, we're only signposts pointing toward nothing. You see, the demonstration illustrates the proclamation, and the proclamation explains the demonstration. There is an explanation needed for the cross and resurrection of Christ and the miracles of Christ that took place then and are taking place now. So we give attention to both. Proclamation. Even my little five-year-old daughter realizes the value of proclaiming the gospel. And this week I came home and I got home around 5.30 from work here at the church. And it had been kind of a long day. And as you walk in my house, it's kind of 
an open living room that opens into the kitchen and there's a counter between the two. And my beautiful wife was there preparing a meal as she usually is when I come home. I'm so thankful for that. Don't take that for granted. And I walk in the door and she's there making a meal and she says, sweetie, how was your day? And I walk over to the counter. I pop my stuff down. I'm kind of tired. You know, I'm like, oh, I had this meeting and it went forever. And then I had this meeting and then I met with so-and-so. And then I had this meeting and then I met with that guy. And my little Daisy love, my little five-year-old, all the while she, she left the living room where she had just given me a hug and she goes into the kitchen and she pulls out a wooden spoon. She knows where, they're, where they are because she sees daddy get them. She pulls out a wooden spoon, and I don't really pay attention to it. I'm just still telling my wife I had all these meetings and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, I feel on my backside. <laughs> Daisy just whack with a wooden spoon right at my rear end. You know how you go like that when you were a kid? You're like, oh, I did that thing. I was like, oh. And I turned around. I'm like, Daisy, what are you doing? Why are you spanking daddy? She looks up at me, and she's shaking the spoon. And she goes, because you didn't preach the gospel today, daddy. You only had meetings. You're supposed to preach the gospel. Who are you? Who is this kid? And she gave me one more. Okay, sweetie, I'll preach the gospel. I understand it's important. Even my five-year-old gets something that the church needs to be more passionate about. Demonstration and proclamation of the gospel of God. Now, as we think about mission and being on mission, we need to remember that the mission of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the actions and the miracles of Christ are an unfolding, an unfolding to us of the person of God. As John 1.18 says, no man has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in his bosom, Christ, has explained or exegeted him to us. So the incarnation of Christ and the actions and the ministry and the words of Christ are an unfolding and explaining of God to humanity. And that is what the word of God is. The thrust of the Bible is it's a book about God. It tells us about God. Now the kingdom... It's supposed to be an expression, an explanation of God, our participation in it. The kingdom functioning in our world is to be an expression of what God is like, an illustration of what things look like when God gets his way. Our kingdom ministry and mission is to be an illustration of what things look like when God gets his way. How can we expose and explain God to people through kingdom-minded mission. Now, what does it look like when God gets his way? When Jesus comes for the first time, he reveals in history what it would look like when God gets his way. When the kingdom, of com- when the kingdom comes, excuse me, Jesus brings a content of the kingdom into a human context. And here in Luke chapter 4, we have an explanation of what that look like, looks like. Verse 16, it says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened up the book and found the place where it was written, 
He read this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Here's Jesus at the beginning of his ministry as the kingdom is being inaugurated and breaking into history, explaining what that will look like, the kingdom coming, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says it looks like the poor hearing the gospel, the poor hearing good news, captives who are held unjustly being released, those who are blind beginning to see, and the downtrodden being set free. That's what it looks like when the content of the kingdom steps into the context of humanity, when God gets his way. Now, kingdom mission, based on that, has these three components. Number one, it is spirit-empowered. Christ himself said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to do the mission that he would speak of. So our mission has to be spirit-empowered. We need to be a people who are desperate for the power of the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. His anointing in our daily comings and goings and activities and interactions for the furtherance of the kingdom. We need to be desperate for the power of the Spirit. We need to be fully given to proclamation, as I said, because Christ was. He said that he came to preach the gospel and proclaim release. And we need to give ourselves to Holy Spirit-empowered demonstration as Christ was. Recovery of sight to the blind, the setting free of the downtrodden, and the displaying of the favorable year of, the God, of God within history. Now what happens then is that through these things, through Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation and demonstration and our stewardship of the favor of God, the grace of God, we can actually see in our community poverty being dealt with. We can actually come to see in our community injustice being handled, sickness being treated in a different way, oppression being dealt with. You see, we're stewards of the kingdom and members of the kingdom and the king has come and the king is coming and the fullness thereof. But we can see right now a degree of poverty being dealt with, injustice being handled, oppression being dealt with in sickness. And the way that we need to see this and approach this is with a holistic approach a holistic approach. I told you before that the incarnation does away with that false dualism that we're so into, that dualism of the separation between the sacred and the secular. You know what I mean? We would see the spiritual and the material as kind of two separate things and, and they maybe don't intersect. That's a false dualism. The incarnation tells us that God cares about both because God who is spirit draped himself in human flesh and so that's a false dualism. And so we need to approach mission as Christ did holistically, giving attention to spiritual realities and problems and means and measures and physical reality problems and means and measures and realize that they are intermingled. There is no separation. For example, many of us are fond of Isaiah 53, 5 that says, by his stripes we are healed. Now look what the New Testament does with that. Matthew, in chapter 8 of his gospel, applies that to physical healing. 
They brought many who were sick to Jesus and he healed them that the prophecy might be fulfilled. By his stripes, we are healed. So Matthew applies that prophecy to physical healing. Peter, in his first epistle, chapter two, applies it to spiritual healing and says it speaks of our redemption spiritually. So what we have in the ministry and the mission of Christ and in the word of God is a holistic approach, attention given to the physical and to the spiritual. So that when we speak of poverty in dealing with it, we want to speak of spiritual poverty, people who are spiritually bankrupt. And they're all around us. And then we want to talk about physical poverty. People that don't have resources, opportunities, connectivity, possibilities. As a church, we need to deal with both. When we think of injustice, We see that the New Testament speaks of spiritual injustice and physical injustice and that God deals with both. Blindness. The New Testament speaks of spiritual blindness. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the gospel. And physical blindness. Jesus healed those who were physically blind. Oppression. Jesus stepped into a context where there was national oppression. Israel was an oppressed people. And he also dealt with those who were oppressed by demons and cast them out. So all of these things, these pictures of what it looks like when God gets his way, have physical and spiritual components to them. And we're to be mindful of both because we are surrounded by both. We're surrounded by the physically impoverished and the spiritually impoverished. And the inbreaking of the kingdom is an assault against and a dealing with those things. And the members of the kingdom are to deal with those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be on mission. So as ambassadors of Christ, we're called to both. We have James 1.29, for example, where to widow, excuse me, minister to widows and orphans in their distress. And we have 2 Timothy 2. We're to deal with misconceptions of the gospel and correct those who are in error that they might be set free from the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. So here's some examples of what that might look like, both sides of some of those things. Let's take the idea of injustice and oppression. You guys may have recently heard the story that was in the news, it was all over the place, of those two journalists from America who were captured on the border of North Korea and they were taken right? But they were arrested by the North Koreans and they were held there and they were sentenced to, I think it was 11 years in a military labor camp. And the future for them looked incredibly blink. I mean, I don't know, blank, bleak, bleak. Sure. It looked bleak. I don't know if you guys know about North Korea, but you know, these guys are a little off. And so they're holding these American journalists. One of them happened to be a member of one of our baby churches, Reality Los Angeles. She was a, a regularly attending member there. And, and her husband and her kids were still going to the church. Well, that church saw the injustice and the governmental oppression. And that church did what it could do. And it hit its knees. And that church began to pray incessantly and radically and continually for the release of those two. They were on their knees crying out to the king day and night that justice would be done. And what happened? Bill Clinton himself gets on a plane and goes over there and brings the ladies home. They were released. Now, yeah, praise the Lord. Certainly our government did something. 
No doubt Obama or someone in his administration was on the phone to the North Koreans. But the salient point is that the church did something. The church did something. Because we're members of the kingdom who represent the king. And the king came to deal with injustice and oppression. Similar story with the two ladies who got arrested for being Christians in Iran. And they were in an Iranian prison for 259 days. When they were first arrested, they went before the judge. And the judge said, it's real simple. You just recant. You just denounce your faith. And you'll be off the hook. And they said, we believe in Jesus. We can't possibly denounce our faith. So they were in prison for 259 days. A couple weeks ago, it was the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. You guys remember that? We prayed here at the Carpinteria campus. Well, down at the Ventura campus, you guys prayed specifically for the release of these ladies from that Iranian prison. You prayed in faith. And that week, those ladies were released from that prison. That week they were released. This is the stuff of the kingdom. It wasn't just one church campus praying. There were people praying all around the world. But the salient point is the people of God engaged in kingdom business. We might look at the other side of it. Perhaps we might call it more of a spiritual manifestation of oppression and injustice. One of our baby churches is in Stockton, California, Reality Stockton. And Stockton this year was deemed by Forbes the number one most miserable city in America to live in. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Carpinteria wasn't even on the list, dude. The number one most miserable city in America to live in, Stockton, California. So we've got this little church plant there that's doing well. And they just started a second campus in kind of a, a, you know, a little rougher neighborhood there in the city. And Friday night, this Friday night, as I was going to bed, I was just falling asleep. And I keep my iPhone by my bed as an alarm clock and for emergencies. And you know, just when you're just dozing off and then ding! That little stupid text message sound, you know, right as I'm dozing off, ding. So I'm like, oh, I better check it. And I check it. And it's the pastor of Reality Stockton. And he said, we just cast a bunch of demons out of a girl at our prayer meeting. She's been set free. And I said, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm on fire. I'm so stoked. He said, this is the third person at the new campus that we've had to cast demons out of. That's the stuff of the kingdom. So, so whether the, the immediate sort of visible source was, was a governmental problem of injustice and oppression or if it was a demonic problem, and they're not always so easy to separate, of injustice and oppression, the salient point is the church deals with it because that's what it looks like when the king gets his way. And we, as a people of God, are a foretaste of that, a, a present explanation and exegesis of that. And when Christ comes again, it will take place in its fullness. What about the poor? And the problem is so overwhelming, it's, it's hard to even talk about it. We could even spend a long time just defining who are the poor and what does it mean to be poor and what are the factors that contribute to that. But how can we just kind of start to do something in our little world right now? Uh, someone posted 
a really cool story about their Thanksgiving on missiochristi.net, the website where I ask you guys to help and give your input for sermons and share your stories. So they had a little bit different of a Thanksgiving. So they posted this on the website. I'll just share it with you. They said, quote, we had a fun but different Thanksgiving. Being fairly new to Santa Barbara, we wanted to have a great first Thanksgiving here. So we invited our family and friends who were in Colorado and Texas, but not a single one of them accepted our invitation. Sad for them. But look what they did. So we took it to the streets. We went down to the wharf on Thanksgiving morning and asked several homeless men if they had planned on attending the veterans meal. They said no, they didn't want to go for whatever reason. So we asked them if they'd like to have a meal with us at the end of the wharf on picnic tables. Their eyes lit up and they said, yes, that would be great. What time? I told them maybe around 1230. So we went to the store, got the turkey, etc., etc., and prepared all the sides, took it to the tables at about 12.15, set out a tablecloth, and decked it with a full Thanksgiving banquet. And the kids made greeting cards that they put on the table. At 12.25, I set out to gather some of the guys. Little did I know that they were already on their way to our table. When I got to the end of the wharf, I started asking the homeless people to come, and they all responded by saying, yeah, yeah, we know about it. We're headed there in a few minutes. (laughs) At this point, I knew something was up, and I rushed back to find that there was a line of guys waiting at our table with open hands and smiles on their faces. They got there at 12.30 sharp. And then they say, anyway, we fed many people and we prayed and shared Jesus with a lot of new friends. That's just cool. That's the stuff of the kingdom. And that's so tangible. That's so immediate. That's so doable. That's so profound. And that is just what Jesus said the kingdom will be like. In Luke 14, he gives a parable in explaining the kingdom of God of of the man who was having a banquet and he invited all the rich and the important and the people that he thought ought to come. And none of them came. And so then the guy says, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And Jesus illustrates that those would be the sort of people that would be found at his banqueting table in the kingdom. And that family was doing the work of the kingdom that day when they brought them to the table. Throughout history, the church has done well with this and the church has not done so well with this. In the year 312, Constantine, the Roman emperor, became a Christian. And shortly after, the Roman Empire was declared a Christian empire. What happened? What happened in the century and and more leading up to that time that turned a whole empire? what, What caused Christians to go from religio illicita, an illegal religion who experienced state-sponsored persecution. A quarter of a million Christians killed in the Roman Empire. What took them from being the hated and the hunted to being the namesake of the very empire that they were in? Well, what happened after Constantine gives us some insight to that. Constantine's predecessor, the guy that came after him, was the Roman Emperor Julian. And Julian is referred to by historians and and Christian historians now as Julian the apostate because he didn't believe in Christ as Constantine supposedly did. And what Julian wanted in the Roman Empire was a revival of paganism. 
he didn't like Christianity. He didn't like the influence that it had and he didn't like anything about it. So he wanted a revival of paganism. And here's what he realized is if we're going to combat Christianity, we're going to have to care for people better. If paganism is going to make a comeback, paganism is going to have to at least match the benevolence of the Christians. And we have this historical document of a letter that the Emperor Julian wrote to a prominent pagan priest and talking about this very subject. He said, quote, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected by the pagan priests, that the impious Galileans, speaking of the Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. And everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. You see the problem for those in the empire that wanted to press down Christianity was that the Christians just loved the people too much. And who they loved the most were the people on the margins. Nobody else was caring for. The Christians were caring for. And that is the reason that Christianity overtook, if you want to put it that way, the Roman Empire. You see, there was a present reality of the kingdom because the kingdom is historical, present, and future, and they really practiced the present reality. They didn't just tell people who were suffering and in, in misery, hey, someday, when the king comes, you'll be repaid and things will be better. That's a truth, but they didn't just proclaim that truth. They demonstrated the reality of the kingdom right now. They didn't just say to the miserable, someday it will get better in the kingdom. They brought the kingdom to the miserable and they made their lives less miserable in the immediate context. And so as we stand as a precipice, as a church in America, a pivotal moment in history, we need to ask ourselves, in what way can we begin to alleviate the misery of those who are most miserable around us. Yeah, some people get on planes, some people go over there, but what about right here around us now? This was the Apostle Paul's approach to mission. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, the last verse, he says, I'm not seeking my own good, but I seek the good of many so that they might be saved. The, the, that's the NIV. The NASB uses the word profit. I don't seek just my own profit, Paul said. I seek the profit of others so that a bunch of others will get saved. That's the mindset. How can we begin to get toward that kingdom mindset of it's not just about me and my profit and my good, but I'm going to seek, I mean actively seek, like be involved and be active about being engaged, be full on about the profit and the good of others for the gospel, not merely as a humanitarian effort, but for the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom to the glory of the king, how can we seek the good and the profit of others? One of the aspects of the kingdom that helps us begin to apply this is the upside down nature of it. We realize that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom, meaning two things. Number one, it has different values than we normally hold. The values of the kingdom are servanthood and self-sacrifice. The values of our society are power and influence. Those are opposites. Servanthood and self-sacrifice are the values of the kingdom. 
power and influence are the values of the world. Kingdom is an upside down kingdom compared to the world. Secondly, it means that there is a general reversal that is coming. A day of opposites that is coming in the fullness of the kingdom. Every once in a while, my son will be sitting down to dinner and he'll have a plate full of broccoli, which he hates. And he'll say, oh, I love broccoli and I hate surfing. And I immediately know that it's opposites day. I don't know why kids do this. I don't know where they get it. I think they got it at school. But every now and again, they proclaim opposites day. And with the biggest smile, oh, I love broccoli. I hate surfing. And we all know, oh, it's opposites day. And so we'll do and say all kinds of things opposite. It's so fun. One of the realities of the kingdom is that there is coming an opposites day. There is coming a day of reversal. Christ explained it this way. There are some who are first who will be last. There are some who are last that will be the first. Those who are the greatest on that day will have been the ones who made themselves the servant of all. There is a day of reversal that is coming. In the kingdom of God, the most popular is not the greatest, but the servant is the greatest, Jesus said in Mark 10. And the kingdom of God, the rich and the powerful are not the blessed, but the poor and the poor in spirit are the blessed, Jesus said in Matthew 5 and in Luke 6. In the kingdom of God, it's not those who are loudest with the biggest platform that will rule the earth, but it, are the, it is the meek and the humble that will inherit the earth, Jesus said in Matthew 5. In the kingdom of God, it's not those who amass the most possessions that will be the most satisfied, but it are those who have hungered for righteousness that will be satisfied. And in the kingdom of God, it's not those who have killed the most people that will win, but those who have been persecuted for doing what is right will be greatly rewarded in the kingdom. There's a day of opposites that is coming. And what we do as a members of the kingdom now is, is we manifest that opposite reality in our context right now. We manifest the upside down nature, the reversal of values. We ask ourselves, where might we most potently do this? Well, let's ask ourselves where Jesus did this. The the thrust of Christ's ministry and message was the kingdom of God. And the place where he most frequently spoke about it was the marketplace, where people did business, where they went to work, where they spent most of their time is where Christ spent most of his time while on mission. So if we think about the marketplace, we think about money. We think about money, we realize that money is perhaps the biggest idol in our society. An idol being defined <clears throat> as that which shapes your thoughts and your behaviors. Your God, your idol, if it's other th anything other than the God of the Bible, is that which shapes your thoughts and behaviors. What, whatever causes you to go, you know, I think I need that, and causes you to go and get that. 
If money is your driving factor, I'm in this career because it is this lucrative. I'm on this track in school because I think I can make this much money. I'm doing this to that person to get ahead because I know that there's a bigger payoff. The money is your God. Money is your idol. And many people in our culture have their thoughts and actions formed by money. So how can we bring the kingdom to bear on that idol? That's what God does throughout the Bible. He comes against idols. Head on, he comes against them. How can we bring Christ the king against that idol in our culture? How can we think upside down? It's scary to talk about because in this economy, some people are literally upside down. But look what one lady in our fellowship did. She posted this anonymously on Missio Christi this week. She uh, was a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, and she was at, quote, a law firm where she was very pampered and it was a very good firm. I think that means she was making a truckload of money, right? She's a lawyer. She was very pampered at a very good firm. So there she is doing her thing. She started to realize that the people who were coming to her needed more than just a legal win. She started to realize that these were immensely broken people. And so she started to pray. And for two years, she prayed, God, because of the profession that I'm in, these people are coming to me and it's not a mere win that they need. They're broken. They need more. What should I do about it? And so she felt that the Lord was leading her to leave that cushy job and that big paycheck and strike out on her own and start her own firm where she could care for people differently with a kingdom mindset. Wouldn't you know it, the moment she quit her job at that lucrative law firm, her husband lost his job. Isn't that just the way mission goes sometimes? So with no financial backing, with no safety net, she starts this new firm. And she says, quote, I know I have a grave responsibility now. I'm worthy of my hire, right? She gets paid, but I'm not to prey on the people who come there, right? She's not to take advantage of them. She says, instead, I need to protect, defend, and nourish the people that God sends me. So the first thing that she did when she opened the firm was she hired somebody. What did she hire them to do? She hired a lady to come time, come on as a full-time prayer warrior. She's paid to come and pray for the people getting those legal services. Full-time prayed to pray, paid to pray for their well-being and to pray for this lawyer. And so she continues and says, we've had amazing results. I've had some fantastic legal wins and I could say that they're the result of prayer. This ministry has me in awe. I'm so freed. I understand that the people who come here are broken and I'm able to care for them, witness to them in deed and in word. That, that's a radical kingdom move. That's a radical reversal. That's a dethroning of the dollar. I'm not going to make my decisions anymore according to how lucrative it might be. I'm going to make my decisions according to how many people I might be able to help. She's still putting food on the table. She's still making money. She's probably making good money. I don't know. But she's caring for people in a radical kingdom way. She's putting people before money. It's a reversal of the world order. It's a putting down of the idea of power and influence. And it's a lifting up of the idea of servanthood and sacrifice. 
And we realize that in the gospel of Luke, the number one hindrance that comes up over and over again to people being full disciples, following Jesus Christ, is wealth and influence. Read the gospel of Luke with that in mind. It's in there over and over again that wealth and influence hinder people from fully following Jesus and experiencing and manifesting the kingdom. And so the verse comes to mind again. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that many might be saved. How can we do this right now? The people that we're going to deal with tomorrow. How can we care a little bit more about our own prophet and a little bit more about theirs? That's the stuff of the kingdom. Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. How do we start to take righteousness where it isn't? Peace where it's lacking. Joy where there's sorrow. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I think, and I said I was going to end, but I'll end with this. I think about our baby church in San Francisco. You know, they finally got a building. And the building is in the middle of the city, geographically located, and right in the middle of the Castro District, which is the full-on homosexual part of town. I mean, it's like, it's, it's there. It's radical. That's a kingdom thing. You see, because Christ came to those who were furthest from the kingdom of God. And some who are first are going to be last. And those who end up at the banqueting table are the poor and the lame and the blind and the marginalized and the disenfranchised and the broken. And so the kingdom move in planting that church is where are the people who are farthest from Christ? Let's be in their midst. Because the kingdom of God is righteousness and it's not there. The kingdom of God is peace and it's lacking. The kingdom of God is joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we do that in our lives? Lord, we ask for help to discover that. As a church, Lord, I I know we're lacking. And as individuals, maybe some of us are. I know I am, Lord. And so in all humility, we would simply ask the Holy Spirit, you would help. You'd show us where we lack that kingdom perspective and that kingdom vision. Show us where we're being driven by power and influence. We're now to be servanthood and sacrifice. Thank you for the righteousness that we have in you the peace that surpasses comprehension, the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Help us as members of your kingdom to take this to the people around us, Lord. Please help us. Deal with our idols. Deal with our fears. Deal with our selfishness. Make us better demonstrators and proclaimers of your awesome kingship. Prayer team is up here to your left, maybe some to your right. If you need help this morning, they're mighty in prayer. They'll probably go to the right because there's people on the floor on the left. Ventura, they'll be on your left. They're mighty in prayer. Maybe you need physical healing this morning. They'll lay their hands on you, anoint you in oil and pray for you. Maybe there's some sort of oppression going on in your life that needs to be lifted by the Spirit of God this morning. They'll pray for you. You guys are mighty in prayer. Pray for one another. Where does new freedom need to come into your life that you could be set free to live for the king? I invite you to come and get on your faces and bow before the king this morning. But let's do business with him.